0: Morning church family, I'm glad to be with you this morning, my name is Andy Johnson, I am your missions minister, I am not, much to many of your chagrin I know, Buddy Bell. Um, I am glad to be with you this morning for a number of reasons, the first of which is that I've, I've been trying to, to wiggle my way into the sermon series for, for the whole time that we've been going through it, because I felt like I needed to set the record straight. I need everybody to understand this morning, I am not that guy. Jeremy found a head equally as beautiful as mine to use, and you'll notice that the light reflects off of it very differently than my own. Now, barring our Easter break, which we had last Sunday, we've been swimming our way through Ephesians for a couple of months. And and before we move on, I want us to take a quick look back at the first three chapters, some of the truths that we've heard out of the book of Ephesians. First of all, Ephesians tells us that I am holy. I am blessed, I am chosen, I am accepted, I am forgiven, I am prayed for, I am saved. Part of the deal, I am a sufferer, I am united, I am full. These are some of the truths, just some of them, there are even more that we could draw out of those first two chapters, things that we've been told. But now we come to a turning point today. Paul's been talking about um, the things that we've received heading out. Now he's going to change direction as we come back in. We could say that the first three chapters talk about how to be saved. And these second three chapters are going to talk about how the saved live. Paul has been, he's been screaming grace from the mountaintops. And now he's going to speak of the implications of that grace for the church, which is what we're going to talk about today, for individuals, as well as for Christian families. So that's where we're headed over the coming weeks with the second half of the book of Ephesians. You know, I can almost imagine Paul sitting there in his prison cell, furiously writing the end of chapter three with that glorious, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen, and ending with a flourish and then leaning back against his prison cell wall, taking a deep breath, and jumping right back into it. Because for Paul… Theology and practice are never far apart from each other. It's a shame when we believers, when we separate what we believe about God and what we do every day from each other, our actions as as holy and blessed and all these other wonderful words that we we put up on the screen, come from and grow out of the grace that we've experienced. So in a sense, we can say, because God did these things, I now get to walk in this way. And so today... We're going to be turning around and we're going to be taking a look at our response to this grace of Christ that we've heard about for two months. We're going to begin, though, by hearing the passage. It's a bit of a longer reading, so I ask you to, to open your hearts and open your minds to receive the word of the Lord. This is Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, live a life that is worthy of the calling that he has graciously extended to you. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Tolerate one another in an atmosphere thick with love. Make every effort to preserve the unity that the Spirit has already created with peace binding you together. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you all were called to pursue one hope. There's one Lord Jesus, one living faith, one ceremonial washing through baptism, and one God. The Father over all who is above all and through all and in all. This God has given to each of us grace in full measure according to the anointed's gift as the scripture says, when he ascended to the heights, he put captivity in chains and in his triumph, he gives good gifts to his people. Well, when it says he ascended, it must mean that he also descended earlier to the lower levels, that is to the earth. And the one who descended is the same one who rose from the dead to ascend far above all the heavens so that he could fill all things. It was the risen one who handed down to us such gifted leaders, some emissaries, some prophets, some evangelists, as well as some pastor teachers, so that God's people would be thoroughly equipped to minister and to build up the body of the anointed one. Now, these ministries will continue until we are unified in faith and filled with the knowledge of the Son of God, until we stand mature in his teachings and fully formed in the likeness of the anointed, our liberating king. Then we'll no longer be like children tossed about here and there on the ocean waves, picked up by every gust of religious teachings spoken by liars or swindlers or deceivers. Instead, by truth spoken in love, we are to grow in every way into him the anointed one the head. He joins and holds together the whole body with its ligaments providing the support needed so that each part works to its proper design to form a healthy, growing and mature body that builds itself up in love. Our world is hungry for purpose. It's hungry for meaning. We hear it in we hear it in country songs, we hear it in rap songs, we see it in movies. We even read about it in Reader's Digest. I was reading this month an article that really stuck out to me because it used a quote by a man named Viktor Frankl that Buddy has already used in this sermon series about how a person who knows the why can undergo almost any what. If we understand the meaning behind something, the purpose of something, we can can endure almost anything. But in this article, it was a scientific study, a, a study done that came to the conclusion that happiness... And I think we in the body of Christ understand happiness isn't the goal, that joy and contentment are more the the things that we're aiming for, but that happiness is something we only find in surrendering ourselves to something greater than ourselves. And so this morning, we have a biblical response to this longing that everyone feels for something bigger than ourselves that we can belong to. This morning, we're going to divide it up into three things. First of all, the source of this life. Secondly, the signs of this life. And third, what is the shape of this life that is lived for something greater than ourselves? Well, first of all, the source of this life, we've already covered that in the last two months. The source of this good life, this life lived for something greater than ourselves, is the grace found in Jesus Christ. All these glorious words that we've talked about out of Ephesians and even more glorious truths behind them, they're all things that we've received as a part of Christ's grace. It all starts there. Everything else we're going to talk about today and everything else we're going to talk about in the coming weeks as we finish Ephesians are all built on that foundation. If we don't receive the grace of Christ, we will never be able to live to that maturity, which is the good, meaningful life. So what then are the signs that we're living out this grace that we've experienced? Well, let's see what Paul says. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called to. With all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now Paul begins by by calling us, some translations say by begging us, to lead lives worthy of our calling. He's just spent three chapters explaining to us how we are spiritual billionaires many times over. And he's asking us, he's begging us, don't live like spiritual paupers made me think of, uh, of the, some of the interactions that I have with my kids. I oftentimes tell them, when, when they're doing something that they ought not, I'll tell them, we are Johnsons, we're children of God, we don't live that way. I'm always calling them to live to live for something greater, not just being a son of Andy and Melissa, but a son of the risen king. Now, and I'll, they do sometimes seem, have trouble seeing the connection between picking up Legos and doing kingdom business, but I know that that connection's in there somewhere. But Paul gave us examples of what he means when he urges us to live lives worthy of his calling, and his words are a lot better than Lego words. Let's look at each of these in, in turn. First of all, we have humility. Now, humility is a really interesting word, and the reason it's so interesting is because we invented it. We Christians had to invent that word. Until the time of Christ, there was no Greek word that, to talk about humility in anything but negative terms. It was always a negative concept. And so, when the believers, when the followers of Christ wanted to put into words this this spiritual concept that Jesus gave them, they had to take that old word for humble, lowly, mean things, they had to tweak it a little, and they created a new churchy word, a word that expressed a revolutionary idea that somehow humility can be a good thing to which we are called with joy. Secondly, gentleness. And I want to assure you, brothers and sisters, but particularly you brothers, gentleness is not a call to be a sissy. Christians are not called to be sissies. Uh, Gentleness is more properly defined by speaking of strength in submission. It's the image of a stallion that has been broken to the saddle but never broken in spirit. It's also been defined as finding that perfect balance between always too angry at all the wrong times and never angry enough at the right moments. It's getting worked up about the things that we need to get worked up about when we need to get worked up about them. Gentle Christians are not doormats run over by the world. Gentle Christians are people who are empowered by the spirit of the living God, but choose to live differently. Third, patience. The kind of patience that Paul is talking about here is the ability to remain self-controlled in the face of provocation. It takes endurance, and it takes strength to be patient in this way. It's another word that requires strength in submission. But we're not without example, though. We're told in Scripture that both God and Jesus are, face, are patient in the face of provocation, just like they're calling us to. But do you know what that provocation is? What is that provocation that's always provoking God and Jesus? It's us. But in the, in, in the spite of our provocation, God and Jesus remain f- patient, And that's the kind of patience that we're called to as well. Paul also speaks about love. We make much of the different kinds of love that are in Scripture. And the love that we're talking about here is this idea of agape love. It's the kind of love that seeks the highest good of another with no thought for your own. Every other kind of love has inside of it the idea that you're going to get something back from it. Whether it's the love of a husband for his lover or the love of a friend for another or a brother for a brother, there's always this idea of getting something out of what we put in. But it's not so with this kind of love. When we speak of this kind of love, we hold out for and we work toward the best for someone else with absolutely no thought to what we're going to get out of the deal. It is a love that makes absolutely no sense by the world's reckoning But Jesus tells us it's how the world's going to know that we're his. And finally, the fifth sign of life is peace. Paul tells us that if we are truly living out this grace that we've experienced in Christ, we are going to be people of peace. There's not one of us today that isn't aware of the fact that this world is in desperate need of peace. From racism in schools, to marriages ending because of, quote, irreconcilable differences, to larger countries swallowing up weaker countries... Peace is in short supply. The people of God, that is us, we are called to restore peace, to live in peace, to be unified in the spirit by the bond of peace. We pray for it, we serve the Prince of Peace, and we are to bring a blessing with us every time we go out from those doors to serve in that world. Now as a final note before we move on, we who live out these five qualities, what are we supposed to do about unity? What did the passage say that we're supposed to do with unity? Is it something that we have to create? Is it something that we somehow have to, have to make out of nothing? Absolutely not. Ephesians tells us that our work is to maintain the unity that we already have in the Spirit. Unity is something that God has already created. We receive it, we join in it, we guard it, we speak of it, we fight for it, but it's not our job to create it. We live in what God has already created for us. But now having spoken of this unity in which we're to live, that's not really enough. It's not something we're really quite able to do on our own just yet. And so Paul doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own. He turns to the unity already present within God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to show us how it's done. Paul tells us there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, for those of you who are numbers people out there, and I know that in a crowd this size, there's bound to be another one or two of the lonely souls out there. Those were seven things that Paul ticked off. Seven things that Paul ticked off that talk about this unity that God created in his spirit. And whenever you come across seven things in the Bible, you need to sit up and pay attention to it because that's one of the ways that Bible writers tell us we're speaking about something that's whole, something that's perfect. Um, We see it all throughout Scripture. There's seven days in creation, way at the beginning of the Bible. And those of you who've been brave enough to be taking one of the revelations courses that we've offered, you'll see that all throughout the last book of the Bible, which speaks of how all things are brought back to completion, the book is just full of sevens. And so when Paul lists these seven things, he's pointing out that one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all is a perfect expression of unity. These are the things that we can rally around. These are the things that we as the people of God are called to hang on to tighter than anything else. These are the things that we rally around. It's what Christ established in grace, and it's that in which we get to share by his grace. But right there at the end, Paul left us hanging a bit. He kind of teased us with a new thought. He told us that this grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what, I, what is this gift? It's a new word that Paul just dropped in right here at the end. What is this gift? Paul responds in what is to me the quirkiest, most obscure way that you can respond to any question. That is to take an Old Testament passage and completely mangle it. So... Let's take a look at what I'm talking about. Hang with me. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now I'll be honest with you. When I first came to this section of scripture in preparing for the sermon this week, my first thought was to skip it. I was just going to run on by it because I've never really understood it. And I was going to blame it on the people flipping the slides up on top. But, I, but I, as I began to, to look deeper into this passage, I realized that Paul was doing something here. What I did was I opened up my Bible and I looked at the psalm that Paul was quoting. It's amazing the problems that get solved when you actually open up your Bible and look at something. I went back to Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a psalm extolling Christ, God's victory over his enemies. The image is one of this triumphant warrior king who's returned from battle and trailing out behind him, straggling behind, are all of these people that he's defeated. And he's coming back in victory and he's mounting the steps of his temple or mounting the steps of his palace. And as he goes up, people bring him gifts and they shout accolades to him and they praise him. That's the picture we have in Psalm 68. But you can notice what Paul does here. He flips things around. Psalm 68 ends with, you received gifts from men. Paul doesn't just change the person from you to he. He changes the entire direction of the conclusion. Let's go ahead and put that up there for everyone to see. Our victorious king does not ascend on high to receive gifts. He ascends on high to give gifts. This is a miraculous and a surprising turnaround that Paul speaks about in this passage. Our God is one who pours out gifts on his people, who lavishes them on us. So here's what I think is happening in these verses. It's a little hard to follow, but it's worth it. Paul's telling us that our King Jesus came down from heaven. He lived on, he was born as a baby, he grew up as a boy, he lived and died as a man. But when the one who descended from up on high and came down to earth, when he went back up into heaven, he didn't go up into heaven and demand the, the praise that he was due. He had come to earth, he had just done for the first time something no one had ever done. He lived a perfect life. He defeated death. He bound Satan. He did all of these things. And instead of going up into heaven and demanding praise, on the way he gave us gifts. And in fact, Paul says he blessed us so much with this gift that he has filled all things with it. Well, what is it? What is this gift? Jesus told us about it back in John 16. Jesus told us, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away from you. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells us that this gift that He's bringing us, this Helper, this promised Holy Spirit, is better than having Jesus Himself walking beside us on the path. As hard as it is to believe, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that each and every one of us have today is better than if Jesus himself were sitting in person beside you on that pew. That is good news. That is really good news that Christ has poured this gift out on us. And I'm really glad I didn't just skip over this section uh, this morning. I actually learned something from it. Although I am going to leave for buddy to consider next week whether or not it was legit for Paul to change an Old Testament passage. So let's together move toward the big conclusion. The main thrust that all of this has been moving towards. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says that one of the main ways that Christ has gifted us is with our leaders, it's with our people. Paul chooses to remind the Ephesians what a gift their leaders are, which says to me perhaps the Ephesians had forgotten that. But in other places, we're told of other giftedness, other gifts that, were, that are poured out on the, on the church. Just a few of them that we see in the New Testament. Giftedness is eternal life. It's the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that the place where God has put us, our situation in life is a gift. We've already talked about in Ephesians 3, Buddy mentioned it to us, how our ministry is a gift. Today we hear that people are a gift, and we often talk about the gifts of the Spirit that are poured out on us, that we talk about. There's no one definitive list in Scripture of all the good gifts that God can pour out on His people. But there is unity throughout Scripture that God gives gifts, whether they be people or strengths or special activities, that He gives these gifts for the equipping of His saints, which is us. And I absolutely love the word that Paul chose to use here for equipping. It's the same word that you use for setting a broken bone. It's the same word that you use for fixing a torn net. And it's the same word that you use for when you get two different political parties to come back together and work for one good. It's that same word. The basic idea is that it is putting something as it ought to be, putting something as it was made to be. So God gives gifts to his people in order that we might be restored to what he created us to be. And this brings us around at last to the shape of this life. The source is grace in Christ. The signs of this life are things like humility, gentleness, patience, love and peace. The shape of this life is a unified, healthy body. Paul explicitly says, and and as hard as it is for me to swallow, the church does not attain maturity through being doctrinally correct in all matters. The body reaches maturity as we speak truth in love and as we grow up in every way into Christ who is our head. And the only way that this can happen is when every part is working together properly. The entire body is affected when one part's not doing its job. When we were moving into our home at the end of December, I strained the the joint at the bottom of of my thumb. I think it happened. Israel Afongade and, and, and Luke and Lincoln and Bell were carrying something heavy and they, and they just petered out and I dove out and saved it one-handed. And... Um hey, you scoff. Um, but, but however it happened, I wound up hurting my hand and it was amazing to me the things that I couldn't do or I couldn't do quite as well because that one little joint out of my entire body was out of whack. And that is how it is with the body of Christ. We are made as individuals and as a body exactly as Christ wants us. And he puts us exactly where he wants us to be. When we are all offering our gifts, whatever they may be, up to the body, the body will grow. When we don't, the body cannot grow. It's as simple as that. Now I began with the statement at the beginning of our sermon that this section teaches us I am a part of something bigger than myself. I think that the more accurate statement is that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. I'm learning in my time here at Landmark that part of what makes this family great is its members working together to grow up in Christ in love. Quilters, bakers, speakers, phone callers, teachers, servants, elders, and many, many others are working together to build this body up just as Christ wants it. And if you're one of those this morning, then I say, thank you. And I want you to know that I praise God because of you. But I also am learning that part of what holds Landmark back from fully becoming the family we're intended to be in God is its members refusing to offer their gifts to the Lord. There are many among us who have received the gift of the grace of Christ, who are enjoying the benefits of living as a part of this family without offering up what they have in service to the church. Now whether it be selfishness or fear or greed, or feelings of inadequacy, whatever the reason is, you've decided to stay on the sidelines and you've decided to sit back and watch this body struggle to grow up without all of the parts that God has put here into it. And so to you this morning, I would say to you, do not let your enemy deceive you any longer into thinking that this body doesn't need you. Your gifts, whatever they may be, are needed in this church family. You have been put in this body, in this place, in this time, for a reason. And if you stay on the sidelines, you're not just hurting yourself. You're hurting your brothers and sisters in Christ as well, who are counting on you to do what God has made you, to do what God has saved you to do. Now, if you're one of those who've yet to dedicate yourself to the building up of the body, then the front row is open to you this morning. Come and And let us pray over you as we together discern what our gifts are, what we bring to the body. Or maybe you're one of those who are even a few steps farther removed. Perhaps you've never experienced the grace of Christ poured out on you in baptism. If that's the case, or if you have any other need this morning or any other praise that you want to share with this body, then come forward now as we stand and sing.